0: Book dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author.
0: And I'm Nivea Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider, what have dream experts learned about the importance and meaning of dreams?
1: I remember reading the New York Times review of the book that we're discussing today, which is The Oracle of Night by Siddhartha Ribeiro, and thinking, this is the book I have been longing for. I have always wanted to understand dreams better, and I've never known where to start. Then I read the book and it did not disappoint. It's one of the most thought-provoking and informative books I've read in a long time. So here's some of what the review had to say. The Oracle of Night makes a resounding case for the mystery, beauty, and cognitive importance of dreams. Ribeiro marshals prodigious evidence to bolster his case that a dream is not simply, quote, fragments of memory assembled at random, unquote, but instead is a, quote, privileged moment for prospecting the unconscious, unquote. This book is the culmination of decades of thought and
0: collaborative work. And I also just want to point out that the book draws on so many different fields. He brings in neuroscience, history, literature, biology, psychology, and even more. The book is lyrical. It's sometimes dense. It's so good. So, so good. And has a gorgeous title. Can we just the title for a minute? I love the title. Yeah. Okay. Just a quick word about Siddhartha Ribeiro. He's the founder and vice director of the Brain Institute at, and now everyone is just going to have to really forgive my Portuguese, non-existent Portuguese, (laughs) uh, the Brain Institute at Universidade Federal do Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil, where he currently is professor of neuroscience. He received a PhD in animal behavior from Rockefeller University. His research topics encompass memory, sleep and dreams, neuroplasticity, symbolic competence in non-human animals, computational psychiatry, and psychedelics. We started by asking Siddhartha how he became interested in studying dreams. Here's what he said. Well,
2: I had very meaningful dreams when I was a child and then during adolescence, but it was not until I was in my mid-20s, that I thought of studying them, of dedicating my life to investigating sleep and dreams. This is because of, of events that happened when I was just beginning my PhD in New York City, coming from sunny summer in Brazil to a very dark winter in New York. It was a very difficult experience for me to arriving in a a new place. I barely knew anybody. And in the beginning, I couldn't really understand not just what was discussed in the classes and the seminars, but also the English. Even the English that I used to know well before that was not really uh, something I could understand for about two months. Mm -hmm. I could not engage in conversations. It was weird. And I could not stay awake. I was (laughs) asleep all the time, dozing here and there. And at some point, I decided to just retreat to my room and sleep as much as my body wanted. And that was a lot. That was 16, 17 hours a day. With a lot of dreams, with very vivid dreams, and, and eventually dreams with all the new people, and dreams in English, and dreams about the biological things that I should learn to be able to cope and go along with the group of students that was already there months before at the beginning of the, of the year. So suddenly, this whole difficulty vanished. As soon as spring came, I went from being totally unadapted to being quite adapted. I, I started to make friends that are among my closest friends to this day. I started to work at the lab and get results, which ended up being my PhD thesis years later. You know, I started to enjoy my life in New York City. And I realized then that all the sleepiness and all the excessive dreaming was a process of adaptation. And this is why I decided to study that.
1: You know, one of the things I love about your book is that it gives me so much permission to nap.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Great, wonderful.
1: (laughs) So we use the word dream both for images that run while we sleep and for kinds of thinking that happen when we're awake, you know, daydreams, our hopes and dreams for the future, pursuing the American dream. I always focused on the metaphorical connection between the dreaming we do when we're asleep and the ways that we otherwise use the word dream. But you argue that our nighttime dreaming could in fact be the origin of our capacity to imagine, to daydream, to have hopes and dreams for the future. Can you say a little about that?
2: Yes, that's a great question, because when we ask people about their dreams, they usually refer to a desire, mm-hmm. right? They usually say, well, you know, my dream is to, to survive this year. <laughs> my dream is to <laughs> visit this place, you know. Um, or anyway, to acquire something or to acquire an experience. And this is actually a reflection of something that was said, you know, 120 years ago by Sigmund Freud, which is that desires really drive dreams. And now we know from the work of Mark Solms in the past 20 years and and other people that without a system in the brain to desire things, which is a system that depends on dopamine, what we call the the reward and punishment system. Without that, you cannot really dream. You can have REM sleep, this quite active moment of, of sleep during which most of us have vivid dreaming. But if you do not have the integrity of those neurons that produce dopamine and that allow us to seek rewards and to avoid negative stimuli, we cannot have a dream. We'll enter the the physiological phase of sleep, during which most of us dream, but then people with these lesions cannot dream. And and this is really linking and as you say, you know, going from the metaphor to the actual literal meaning, that that dreaming is about seeking things in a simulated world that represents things in the real world. So, so dreams evolved over hundreds of millions of years and with roots that are really way before mammals. So we're talking about a very, very long process of evolution to lead to a, a mental state that allows us to simulate behaviors. This was probably very adaptive throughout the evolution of mammals, and it, it has links to the amazing cognitive abilities of mammals. And in our lineage, there's a twist, which is the ability to share dreams. So then the things that our ancestors were able to to conceive, things that do not exist in reality, became able to be built by the whole group when our ancestors began to share their dreams. So the link between desires and and dreaming is, is evident very strong and scientifically established. Mm -hmm. And one conjecture that I make in my book is that our capacity to daydream evolved from our capacity to nightdream. So, so, so dream invaded the waking life of our ancestors, and they became able to use part of their brain to dream while awake, while doing other things, dream what they will do in the future or remember things in the past, or, you know, make any kind of scheme that allowed them to survive. So there's a very strong biological necessity for dreaming in the natural world. And this necessity is somehow broken in our contemporary society.
1: I wanted to ask a follow-up actually about this conjecture that you make about our ancient ancestors. Because you paint a really interesting picture of what nighttime dreaming must have meant to people in the Stone Age, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think it creates a compelling argument for this link between nighttime dreaming and daytime dreaming. Can you say a little more about that?
2: Yes. The the parts of the brain that are activated when we dream are the same ones that are activated when we daydream. So when you're daydreaming, what you're really doing is you're dreaming. (laughs) You're dreaming awake And, and the capacity to do those things at the same time was obviously adaptive, obviously, of cultural importance, right? Imagine we are a group of, of homo sapiens uh, 40,000 years ago, and we are worried about, you know, the invasion of the Neanderthals. Actually, it should be the, the other way around. Uh, <laughs> they should not be worried about us.
0: In hindsight, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and then one of us, we're family, and one of us wakes up and says, well, you know, I had a dream about grandma you know, that died a year ago. And she told us to be careful about the east entrance of the cave. We should block it because we may get an invasion from there. Would we take it lightly? Yeah. (laughs) How would we react? I mean, if this happens today, we'll say, well, this is a dream. It has a meaning, but it's not necessarily the meaning that grandma is alive in another plane telling us what to do. But back then, this was sort of the only possible interpretation. That that grandma is still alive, and and she's wants to care for us, and she's giving us good advice. Now we we can only make this conjecture for prehistorical times because we do not have any any positive indication of of dream content, right? If you go forty five hundred thousand years ago back in Sumeria and you look for the first texts of humanity, you find dream reports. You find dream reports that tell about. Beings, entities, godly beings, you know, ancestral beings, the father, the, the grandfather and so on, lineage related, that were giving advice. <laughs> so we can presume that this began way before.
0: Can I go back for just one second and ask a, a question? What happens to people who can't dream or don't dream for some reason?
2: So we need to distinguish two, two kinds of things. here. One is people that say they don't remember dreaming which is most people nowadays, unfortunately, sadly. Recollection of dreaming, not about dreaming itself. People with a little bit of training, a little bit of attention to dreams and to the necessity to record them properly, they will recover the ability to remember the dreams all right. Any person can, can relearn that because this is a very natural, spontaneous behavior.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For a very small group of people, people that have very specific brain lesions, there will be no dream experience whatsoever. You can wake them up during REM sleep and they will report nothing. So what we learn from that is that dreaming is not just the activation of neurons during REM sleep, not the reactivation of memories during REM sleep, but this reactivation must occur under the guidance of desire, under the guidance of neurons that use dopamine to signal the expectation of reward and punishment. Mm -hmm. And, And then when you are In REM sleep, dopamine is again released with a strong effect on the content of dreams. So if you're paying a lot of attention to your dreams, you will discover what are your fears and what are your desires. And often we are not conscious of those. So so a big part of what we're talking here is how the brain acquires new memories during waking, but then consolidates those memories, processes those memories during sleep, at various levels, at the level of individual neurons, at the level of, of multiple neurons, at the level of multiple brain regions, we have an emergent property that is at the psychological level. And this is where dreaming you know, is happening.
1: Right. In your book, you say, why did so many different people see an oracular, like an oracle function in dreams? And why do so many see it still? Is it possible to find a logical or scientific explanation for the idea that dream activity anticipates future events? I love those questions and (laughs) would um, love it if you could tell us what you think.
2: This is really the core question of my book, and that's why it's called The Oracle of Night. Mm. What I argue in the book is that dreams are an oracle into the future, but not a deterministic oracle not an oracle that knows what's gonna happen because what's gonna happen hasn't happened yet. However, if you have an, a probabilistic oracle, then you can come up with a, with a well-educated guess. And this is what dreams are. This is how they evolved. This is why they were positively selected throughout evolution as a way to simulate the future based on the past. And sometimes you, you're right on and, and often you're you're not. But it gives you at least a scenario of possible futures. And this gave our ancestors, our mammalian ancestors, a cognitive edge.
1: One thing I love about Siddhartha's book is that it paints a compelling picture of what dreams meant to our ancestors. A picture that radically alters my understanding of the significance of dreams. He talks in the book about how science has established that when we dream, we're in part consolidating our memories of what happened during waking hours, both what we picked up consciously and what we picked up without even realizing it. And so assuming that our minds work fundamentally similarly as our ancient ancestors, they presumably dreamed of their encounters with you know, say the woolly mammoth. They went over and over it in their dreams they came up with vivid dream scenarios and those dreams would have been the only kind of video images that they had you remember they had no hbo yeah so they would have thought about them more than we do during the day, they would have discussed them, you know, the way we discuss succession you know, yeah. with <laughs> others, right? Yeah, right. It's
0: kind of woolly mammoth-esque, <laughs> right, for sure. Right,
1: right. Um, and they adapted how they considered confronting woolly mammoths going forward during their waking hours because of their dreams. So in this way of thinking of things, dreams have profoundly affected the shape of human history, the tools that we've developed, are adaptations. So Siddhartha uses everything from modern day brain studies to cave paintings from 14,000 years ago to support this view. And I find it compelling
0: and fascinating. Yeah, I do too. It is amazing to think of how we have devalued dreams. Yeah, yeah. And I want to pick up on one small part of what you just said. Siddhartha talks in the book about how our dreams help us understand signals that we pick up on during the day without even realizing it. Yeah, He explains the science showing that dreams pick up on what we know only subliminally. And he says, and I'm quoting, a dream is a privileged moment for prospecting the unconscious, adding clues about the risks and opportunities of the environment, many of them subliminal, but nonetheless able to be integrated into a general impression of what might come to pass. I keep thinking about the implications of that for people who don't dream at all What does it mean that their brains don't have the opportunity to work through things on an unconscious level? And then also, what does it mean for us that we modern people remember our dreams less and less? So yes, we are, if we have the ability to dream, we are working through things unconsciously, but we're not making full use of those insights in our conscious lives.
1: Right. And- Siddhartha makes the point so powerfully that what our brains do with both the subliminal and the known during our dreams is vital. As he puts it in the book, and I'm quoting, the evidence is converging toward the idea that mammals' dreams are probabilistic simulations of past events and future expectations. The main function of these simulations would be to test out specific innovative behaviors against a replica of the world from memory instead of the real world, leading to learning that is risk free. Mm. One problem is that even when we remember our dreams perfectly, they can be hard to understand because, as Siddhartha puts it, we dream in metaphor. There's a lot we don't know about the symbolic content of dreams. But here's Siddhartha's take, starting with some of the science of what's happening.
2: One thing we know is that dreams are hyper-associative. So you, you start dreaming in New York City, and, when, and at the end of the, the dream, you may be in London. And you may start the dream in the, you know, together with a certain friend, and at the end of the book, you may be your cousin. Now, why is that? One possibility is that the lack of a specific neurotransmitter allows the propagation of electrical activity during REM sleep to be much more free than it is during waking, Mm -hmm. okay? And, And throughout REM sleep, there is no norepinephrine being released in the brain. What that does is that it gives freedom to follow associations that are not obvious. And this has to do with the fact that REM sleep facilitates creativity, facilitates memory restructuring facilitates finding an association that is not so obvious. Mm-hmm. Now, your question is also about the metaphors. So the metaphors have to do with that, but there's more to it, which is that you dream of specific things. You dream of people, you dream of places, you dream of things that have ecological meaning. So dreaming has to do with visual areas of the brain that are very good at face recognition, at recognition of different objects, separation of inanimate from animate objects and so on. All those regions are strongly activated as well as regions related to the entrance of of memories like the hippocampus and also the the value, the emotional value, the the effect that we place on things. All those regions get activated at the same time and they talk and they interact and, and they put in motion a reactivation of memories that represent people, animals, and things and places. In this setting, the the self-representation navigates, interacts, and the things that happen then have to do with the motivations of the person that is dreaming. This we know for sure. Now, why is it that the death of a beloved person becomes that particular symbol? This is something that is studied deeply studied in psychoanalysis and also in analytical psychology, deeply studied by several non-scientific traditions, but something that has been to a large extent disregarded by science. Mm -hmm. Basically, scientists in the past 100 years agreed to say that they don't care about that. And I think this is not really good for our (laughs) connection with our ancestry and for our construction of a new future, because we cannot get rid of dreams. Dreams are an integral part of our past. And if we are to have a future, they must be rescued.
0: You include in the book this paraphrase of Freud, which is, dreams are like stars. They're always there, but we can only see them at night. What does that mean?
2: It means that we are dreaming all the time, but when we are awake, you have sensory pathways that will bring information into the brain from the external world that will override the dreaming that is going on. It's still going on, but you can't see them,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
2: Imagination is quite faint when you're having a daydream or when you're trying to imagine something. It's much fainter than reality, and it's much fainter than a night's dream because you have all the, these inputs coming at the same time from the external world saying something entirely different.
1: Um, I once had a very strange experience that leads me to this question. So while we were awake... Does that dreaming that you just referred to, the daytime dreaming, can it come through? So here's the experience that I would really love an explanation for. (laughs) I had recently spent a year in Israel with a very dear friend. We'll call her Claire. I returned to the United States before she did. I was in New York with no contact with her at all and I started to have a feeling that she was in the hospital and I should really get in touch with her somehow. But I didn't know which hospital, so I was feeling very bad about having done nothing. I went to sleep, and when I woke up, the phone was ringing. It was a mutual friend calling from Israel to tell me that Claire was in the hospital. I already knew that, I told this mutual friend. And she paused and said, you can't possibly know that. You're the first person we called. So I very rarely talk about this moment because it's so inexplicable. I'm wondering whether there's anything about the dreaming process that could help explain it.
2: Hmm, That's quite an interesting report. Can I ask a few questions?
1: Sure, sure. <laughs>
2: Was she in the hospital for something that was accidental or some disease that was developing?
1: No, she was in the hospital for a condition that she had had since she was born that was flaring up.
2: And you knew about
1: that. I did know that she had the condition. I didn't but know she didn't that have it symptoms. was flaring. She
2: didn't have right. symptoms that when you left. Right. So you know, uh, we clearly have two possible interpretations. Right. First one is, dreaming is more than a probabilistic oracle. It can also be somehow related to future events or events that are happening at the same time, but you're, you're not physically connected to them. This is what most people will believe when you when you tell them a story like this, right? Mm. If Claire was not your friend, if you didn't know her, and if you didn't know she had a condition, I would place my bets on this kind of interpretation, <laughs> right? But because it's the other way around, because you were together and you were together for a long time with a strong bond and then you leave and then you're worried about her and concerned about her, you could have grasped many subliminal signals, not, not just visual signs, but you know, perhaps pheromones, you know, many things that may be going on that you we're not aware of and that you could generate some simulation of risk This is also, I would say, you know, given that you were such good friends, not unlikely. Mm.
0: Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Mystery mystery kind of solved.
2: Well, no, I don't want to say that. I didn't say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, mystery further explored. How about that? Good, good. Yes. You write about classic plots to dreams that I think... Everybody can relate to. So we dream that we're naked when we're not supposed to be naked or we're unprepared for a test, which is my personal nightmare over and over again, Or we've lost our teeth or we're searching for someone and we can't find them. Do dream researchers assign particular meanings to these classic plots and why do they seem to be universal? Ha. Huh.
2: Well, I, no, I don't think so because there is no universal meaning. Meaning is, is something that we agree upon. So if I dream about a shark and I tell you about that, before you make any interpretation of the dream, you need to know what sharks mean to me. Mm-hmm. Well, having said that, <laughs> there are many common things in our dreams. There are motifs. And these motifs, they are related to our shared experiences. We're all born. We're all taken care of and we all became teenagers and then we all, you know, so these things are things that we share and they are reflected in our dreams. There's this very strong continuity between the waking life and the dream life. And this continuity has to do with the daily activities, but it has to do also with these major transitions in our lives. I I think that we are starting to have a maturation of neuroscience and psychology and cognitive psychology so that we can go back to those complicated questions, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? I think that there's been a divorce between the biomedical sciences and depth psychology that has been very detrimental to us gaining more introspection. Because now we know a lot about the brain, but we still know little about how the brain relates to the mental objects that are really what matters to us, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. These these are the objects with, with which we deal every day when we are awake and also when we are dreaming. Uh, And I think in the past 20 years, and this is something I go at length in the book, is we really started to chart this territory and to create these connections and to be able to understand, for example, that our minds are not inhabited just by ourselves. They are inhabited by by a plethora of creatures of the mind, right? representations of beings that exist in real life or or not, that are really our mental ecosystem, that were so important for our ancestors and should be very important for us if we only cared about them, if we pay attention to them, this would be very good for our future because by having this kind of dream work and be able to get in contact with those inner representations, we can find you know not just more joy and contentment, but also more empathy.
0: Well, and and along these lines, it seems like there's also a divorce between dream study and history. And what I mean by that is you talk in the book about how the meaning of symbols and dreams were very similar in different ancestral cultures, mm. and that the similarity is an important clue to us as we try to decipher dreams. What were some of those similarities and what do they tell us today?
2: Well, in general, it's all been about the dichotomy of the fight between prey and predators, the competition world, and the world of care. So since time immem- immemorial, our ancestors had to deal with this necessity to fight what's outside the group, but also take care of those within the group. And because of that, many of our shared symbols have to do with the fear of being attacked of being preyed upon, right? Mm -hmm. In many different cultures, if you dream about predators, this is bad omen. But this doesn't have to be so. This is where we we need to really uh, understand that dreaming is referenced in the dreamer. Mm -hmm. If you're a hunter and if you have a dream about a predator that represents your clan, this may actually increase your motivation to go hunt. Right. So the generalization of, of dream symbols is very difficult. It has been attempted since the beginning of times in Assyria. You know, Thousands of years ago, there was a, a, a book that, that compiled many different dreams and their fixed interpretation. And this is something that still exists. People are still selling those things on the internet. But they really can't help the dreamer. What can help the dreamer do the interpretation is to pay a lot of attention, to discuss the dream report with people that are also paying attention, (laughs) that care, right? And really try to make the connections. What is the meaning of this particular symbol in my life, in this moment of, of my life, in relationship to my problems, to my challenges, to my difficulties, to my fears? This kind of work, the work in the inner world is something that has been deemed unnecessary by most people, especially people that are focused on efficiency. But I would argue that even if you're only searching for efficiency, you need to pay attention to the inner world and the dream experiences is, is perhaps the best way to do that.
1: Can I? just go back for a second and reflect on what Siddhartha said about the dream that I had about my friend in Israel? No. <laughs> Please. <laughs> of
0: course. Of course, Please. I
1: thinking about this, right, right? So I just want to say before it seemed like this dream that I had was maybe tapping into some, you know, psychic power. And now Siddhartha has given a rational explanation for something that seemed before like it might be beyond the realm of reason. And so I might've imagined if I had thought about it that I might feel a loss if I got that rational explanation. Like before I had this flash of a special power and now that's gone. But instead I'm feeling in awe, just awe of the power of all of our minds. Like we're noticing so much that we don't realize. We all have this ability to tap into so much more than we know. And we're depriving ourselves of it because we don't pay attention. <laughs> you know, we're not even subliminally picking up on clues in the same way we used to, because we're looking for yet another navy sweater on White and Warren, you know, just yeah. to choose a completely random example. And as you mentioned earlier, we've lost a connection with our dreams, even for many, an interest in them. It's possible to get that connection back. You know, Siddhartha talks about things we can do to remember our dreams better. And he makes a really powerful argument that we should.
0: Yes. I mean, there's our ability to learn and adapt. There's connection to our history. And then there's also the possibility of more joy, contentment and empathy, which, you know, the world certainly needs more of those. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of contentment. Siddhartha makes a really compelling case for the benefits of sleep, including frequent naps. So it turns out naps don't make us slothful. They help us learn and add to our productivity. So I, I say we should just get on that right away. Like way uh, more napping in our lives.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Let's go nap. Yeah. And I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts
0: or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Siddhartha on Instagram at Siddhartha
1: Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com and check out the podcast website www.bookdreamspodcast.com Newly
0: Newly remodeled Oh yes We have a new website Go check it out Yes Exactly (laughs) All right Until next time Happy book dreaming Happy book dreaming